Well, good morning. It is good to gather with you this morning as we prepare to worship God together. Um, if you're, you're new or visiting, I just want to welcome you here to Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, just a couple, a couple of announcements. Immediately after the service today, we will we'll head down to Maple Lake um, Beach and we will... We'll have a baptism down there after the service. We'll um, yeah, try to head down pretty much as soon as we get out of here um, and do that baptism, hopefully by 10.45, 11, somewhere in there. Um, and then after that, we'll have a picnic. It'll be food um, served, and we'll just kind of enjoy time together as a church family. So we will invite you to join us for that. Um, next Sunday, after the service, on the 22nd, we will have... Uh, a church meeting that we would invite you to be a part of. We will um, vote on some bylaw changes and on um, installing Kevin DeHaan as a, as a deacon. So we invite you to be a part of that um, and just kind of also hear some of the things that we have kind of envisioned for the church going going forward. I also wanted to mention, many of you know Bill and Nancy Long. Yesterday is their 50th wedding anniversary. Uh, just want to celebrate them. Uh, yeah, just uh, an incredible testimony to, um, yeah, God at work in the marriage. Um, with that, I'm going to turn over to our worship team and say, lead us in marriage, or in <laughs> worship. <laughs> Good morning. We're going to ask you to stand and um, begin some worship with us this morning. I know it's been like a, just an absolutely gorgeous week of weather, and I know I hope you all have been able to enjoy it and get outside. It feels like fall a little bit. Start this morning just praising a little bit. Five. 
pray. Father, we, we come before you. We praise you that you are indeed way maker, that you keep your promises, that you work miracles that we just sang. And Father, we, we pray that you would you would continue to be at work in the lives of each of us gathered here, especially those of us who are here this morning or who can't be here or just feel an extra need for your, your presence and your work in their lives. Think of several people who are dealing with um, really serious illness or pain and suffering in various ways, that you would be at work to um, reveal your, your presence and your peace in their lives. Um, I pray that you would, you would be honored, you'd be glorified through how we, how we care for them and we seek and return to you even in the midst of hard and trying times. God, as we just continue this time of worship the rest of this morning, pray that you would calm our hearts, still our hearts, so we could sing in a way that brings you honor, that brings you glory, that our hearts and our minds would be focused on you, that other cares, other worry could fall away for the moment, and we would we'd be focused on bringing you honor and bringing you glory. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. going to keep you standing here and going to another worship set. Um, that last song we sang, as we were singing it, you know, I was, the, the lyric that really stood out to me is, even when I don't feel it, you're working. You know, like our, our faith isn't about feelings, and there are a lot of days where I don't feel, right, that God is here or that things are going how they should go, but the truth is that God is here and that he is working. This next song is another one just full of truth. The lion and the lamb. He's coming in the clouds. Kingdom, kings and kingdoms will bow down. We serve a powerful God. We serve a mighty God. So as we're worshiping this morning, and we're going into like a baptism morning, these songs are just riddled with, with truths. And uh, just dwell on that, that it's not about how we feel this morning. It's about God and what he's done for us and what he is every day, no matter how we feel.
you know, all these lyrics that we sang this morning. Yeah.
Father, we thank you for joining us here this morning, for letting us worship, for giving us the freedom in you, Father. We thank you for these truths that we've sang about this morning. We worship you. We love you. In your name, amen. You may be seated. And as we can continue in our time of worship this morning, one of the ways we want to invite you to worship with us is by through your tithes and offerings. We want you to get an opportunity to worship and giving back to God what he has so generously given to us. So if you want to give this morning, there are boxes on the back wall that you can place your, your giving in. Um, if, you're a, if you're a visitor, please know that we're not expecting you to give. We want this service to be a gift to you. Um, but if you're a regular attender here, a member here, and you want to worship with us in that way, that's how you can do that. As my, as my kids get older... One of the things that I'm like really learning to appreciate is like media that informs my entertainment that appeals to both kids and adults. Right? Like there is plenty of informed entertainment that appeals to kids but do not appeal to adults. Right? And I've seen what feels like most of it at this point. Right? Like there's just so much bad kid entertainment, and so like I just seen way too much. And so like we have family movie night some weeks and. We take turns alternating, like, who's going to pick what we watched? Like, every other week it's the girls, and then the next week it's me and Vanessa going to pick something that's, like, kid-friendly, but maybe we might enjoy a little bit, too. And so, that's been a nice rhythm, especially in the weeks we get to pick. Like, we watched Toy Story recently and things along those lines. Like, one of the movies that I'm looking forward to one day picking is the movie Shrek. I, I like that movie. It's entertaining. Our kids are not quite old enough yet or where they're at where they can watch that so like but someday like we'll pick that movie and I'm looking forward to it because I enjoy I enjoy that movie and if you're not familiar with that movie it's kind of like a a spoof a parody of kind of classic fairy tales so it's about this ogre named Shrek who he kind of forced by the evil lord Farquaad to to go rescue the beautiful princess Fiona like, from this castle that's guarded by a dragon so that so Lord Farquaad can marry her. Like, he doesn't want to do it himself, so he sent this ogre to rescue her so that he can marry her. And so Shrek sets out on this adventure along with his com- companion, a, a donkey named Donkey. And they, and they go to a castle, and they avoid the dragon, and they rescue Fiona. And, like, at first Fiona assumes that, like, this is her knight in shining armor coming to rescue her. But then Shrek takes off his helmet, and she sees that he's an ogre, and she's, like, all of a sudden horrified. But then Shrek takes the time to explain, like, oh, no, like, you're not marrying me. I'm just doing this for this Lord Farquaad. And so Fiona agrees to go back with Shrek to marry this Lord Farquaad. Right? But inevitably, because it's a movie, like, along the way, Shrek and Fiona kind of start to, to fall in love. But then one evening, Donkey discovers that Fiona turns into an ogre herself every night from sunset until sunrise. And Fiona tells Donkey that only love's true kiss will break the spell and change her into love's true form. And so meanwhile, like Shrek is outside. He's about to confess his true feeling to Fiona, but then he overhears Fiona call herself an ugly beast, but she assumes he, she's talking about him, and so they get upset and they have this big fight and whatever. And so Shrek runs off, goes grabs Lord Farquaad, brings them back, and... Fiona's upset that Shrek ran off, and so she agrees to marry Farquaad. 
And she's gone through it like before sunset the following night, right? Before she has to turn into an ogre again. And so Lord Farquaad is about to marry Fiona in the, a wedding ceremony, but then Donkey explains to Shrek that no, she, she wasn't talking about you, she was talking about herself. And so Shrek bursts into the wedding. And at the last minute, he stops the wedding and he confesses his true feelings for Fiona. And there's this delay. Right? And this delay causes the sun to set and Fiona transforms into an ogre in front of everyone. Right? And she's like horrified, but, but Shrek kisses her anyway. Right? And as he kisses her, there's this magical moment we've all seen in a hundred fairy tale movies, right? Where like there's light all around Fiona and like you can tell the spell is being undone. She is being transformed. The spell is being broken. And as the light fades away from around Fiona, she's like lying on the floor and as she stands up, you realize she's still an ogre. And in fact, like now her permanent form is as an ogre. And at this revelation, Shrek says, well, that explains a lot. <laughs> like, it explains a lot of her behavior. And then Fiona says, like, I don't understand. I'm supposed to be beautiful. And Shrek replies, you are beautiful. And it's all very happy and savvy and beautiful and nice and whatever. Like, but like, Fiona's true nature has been revealed. Right? And Shrek is embracing her for her true nature. The whole, the whole stick of the movie right, hinges on everyone like, misunderstanding Fiona's core identity. Right? They all assumed that she was a princess, but she was. Like, but that wasn't the core central aspect of her identity. Right? And that misunderstanding caused all kinds of conflicts and problems. Right? People can know a lot of things about Fiona. They can know about her, her personality. They can know her likes and her dislikes. They can know what she was good at. They can know she was a princess. And like you learn all those things throughout the movie. But until you understand that she is, at her core, an ogre, then you're missing the essential truth of who she was and not everything about her makes sense. And in the book of Luke, we find ourselves in a similar place in the life of Jesus. Luke has revealed a lot about Jesus throughout the course of this book. He's, he's shown us that Jesus is a teacher, he's a healer, and a prophet, and a miracle worker. And all those things are true about Jesus. But in today's passage, we reach a point where we discover that we can believe all those things about Jesus and still miss the central truth of who he is. Because none of them encapsulate Jesus' core identity. And unless we grasp like, the central core truth of who Jesus is, nothing else about him quite makes sense. It doesn't matter like, what else you believe about Jesus. If you don't believe the essential truth of who he is, like, then believing all that other stuff doesn't do you any good. So we're going to be in Luke Chapter 9 this morning, verses 18 to 22. Okay, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. The verses will also be on the screen. So we've, been, we've been in this series in Luke for a while now, and if you've been to some of those sermons, you might recognize that like, this passage, like, it's four verses long, is shorter than like, the passages we often preach through as we go through this book of Luke. And that there's an important reason for that. And that is that like, this is the moment, right? In the entire 
that the entire first half of the book of Luke has been building toward. Everything's been building up to this moment in the book of Luke. This question, like, who is Jesus? That's been a key question throughout the book that Luke has raised over and over and over again. And he's slowly been revealing more and more and more of, of the answer to that question. But in this passage, the disciples finally grasp like, the central core truth of who Jesus is. We'll also see in the passage that like, they, don't, they don't grasp all the details of who he is. Like, they still miss some details and some ramifications of that identity. But they finally have the central truth right. Let's look at these verses together. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, I just want to stop right here because there's two things I want to point out from this verse that don't fit quite into the bulk of the sermon but are worth mentioning. One, if we see Jesus praying here, and let's continue the pattern where throughout the book of Luke, every time Jesus is at a key point in his ministry, like Luke always mentions him praying. We see Jesus praying before his baptism. And we see Jesus praying before he healed the paralyzed man. We see Jesus praying before he chose his twelve apostles. And Jesus prayed before, we'll see next week, before his or two, two weeks, before his transfiguration. Like all I have to say, like prayer was an essential part of Jesus' life and ministry. Because he was fully human, fully man, he had a sense of dependence on his heavenly father. He knew he couldn't go through life in his own power. And if that's true for Jesus, like, then certainly it's true for us. Like, nothing should compel us and motivate us and urge us to pray more than seeing Jesus pray. If you think you need prayer less than Jesus, then we have problems. And the second thing from this verse, right, I find the phrasing... Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him confusing. Like, what, like was he in private or was, were his disciples with him? Like, that still seems to conflict. Like, and I think what Luke means here is that like, they finally got away from the crowds. Right? So remember last week when Jesus fed the 5,000, the reason they couldn't send the crowd the way to go get food is because like, Jesus and the disciples had gone out kind of away from everything in this remote area, to try to get away, to try to get time by themselves. But the crowd followed them. They couldn't get away until they all of a sudden were out and they needed food and there was no food nearby. And so Jesus did that miracle where he fed the 5,000. But they were trying to get away, just Jesus and the 12 disciples. And now finally, here in this passage, they get get that time away. So I took back up. One Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him. He asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone, tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. 
And so, like, in this passage, we see, like, three understandings of who Jesus is. That the crowds of people following him have one understanding, but their understanding is outright insufficient. The disciples have a, another understanding of who Jesus is, and that understanding is sufficient. I think it's a so core central truth, right? But their understanding is still incomplete. And then finally, Jesus gets his own understanding of himself, which is both sufficient and complete. And so in the rest of our time this morning, I want to look at each of these three understandings of Jesus and so we can learn from them and then ask the question, like, what does it look like to have that kind of understanding today? Let's start with the crowd's understanding. Just ask the disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? To which the disciples replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. And so the crowds the crowd see three possibilities for who Jesus could be. And the first possibility they see is, is John the Baptist, which I find a little confusing because like, certainly the crowds knew that Jesus and John the Baptist were contemporary. Right? They lived at the same time. Like, why would they think that Jesus is John the Baptist? I think probably the best way to understand this is that the crowd thought that when John was killed, Herod had John killed, and they thought that the spirit that was on John that allowed him to do his ministry was like transferred to Jesus. Much though we see the spirit that was on Elijah transferred to Elisha in the Old Testament. Because remember, like, even though Jesus and John were, were born close together, right, John was a much bigger deal early on. When Jesus was baptized by John, John already had a large following coming out to be baptized by him. Meanwhile, like, Jesus was a nobody carpenter from Nazareth. Right? So John's a bigger deal early on. But then, but then Herod kills John right around the same time that Jesus starts to attract more, more crowds and to show more and more displays of his power. And so it probably didn't seem like a coincidence to the crowds that just as John is killed, this new prophet, this new teacher comes up who has unique powers. Right? They saw this John's spirit being passed to Jesus. Right? The second possibility that some people in the crowd saw was that Jesus was Elijah. Right? That they, they knew the prophecy of Malachi 4 or 5, which says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And so some, some of the crowd thought that Jesus was the fulfillment of this prophecy. That he was the, the new Elijah. And the irony here is that some of the crowd thought that Jesus was John the Baptist, and others thought that he was Elijah. When in fact, we learn elsewhere that John was the fulfillment of that Elijah prophecy. John was the new Elijah. And Jesus was neither John nor Elijah. And then the third possibility, kind of circling among the crowds, that Jesus was like some other prophet brought back to life. And that just seems like some kind of catch-all term, like a way to say, like, we don't really know who this guy is, but it's clear that like, there's something special about him. God's given him some unique gift. So they're kind of whatever, right? And so, like I mentioned before, I'm really bad at tree identification. 
And so like, I can imagine a scenario where like I'm out on a walk with a couple of friends and they start arguing. Like if that tree like a red pine or a white pine, and like they're fighting back and forth, and they, they turn to me and they ask like, what do you think? And I would say like, uh, it's a tree. And like that's kind of what the third crowd is doing, or the third group of the crowd is doing. Like the two crowds are fighting against, it's John the Baptist, it's Elijah. And I turn to the third group and they're like, eh, he's some kind of special, unique prophet, something. They don't take a firm, a firm stand. So that's yeah. So there's these three views of who who Jesus is, kind of circling among the crowds, and they all kind of agree that he's some kind of prophet or some kind of uniquely gifted by God. But they're not willing to go any further than to say that. And in short, their understanding of who Jesus is is insufficient. And we see like many people who have a similar understanding of Jesus today. They may not outright deny that Jesus existed. Like, not many people do because like, the historical evidence is just too strong. Right? There are many who claim that Jesus was far less significant than the Bible claims he was. Right? There are many who would say that like, the teachings of Jesus are wonderful, right? but they would reject any claim that Jesus was divine. One writer who calls himself a quote-unquote Christian humanist Put it this way. At its core, being a Christian today means exactly the same thing for us as it meant for, to his first disciples. Consciously choosing to be an advocate of Jesus and his teachings. And like maybe we could agree with that. That might sound okay. But then the same writer goes on to say, it is that timeless challenge that continues to captivate and motivate us. It is a challenge accepted by the Peace Corps volunteers, the builders of homes for Habitat for Humanity, the volunteers in the homeless shelters and prisons, the helper in the food kitchens, and the driver for Meals on Wheels, those who bring joy and healing to a young child, and the mother Teresa of the world. Then he says this, there is nothing in that challenge of commitment to the service of humanity that requires us to believe any particular notion of a divine being or any religious dogma. Jesus is a good guy who inspires us to to live a good life, but that's it. Or Gandhi, right? speaking of Jesus, said something similar. He said, what does Jesus mean to me? To me, he was one of the greatest teachers humanity has ever had. Jesus, a man who was completely innocent, offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became the ransom of the world. It was a perfect act, which again, sounds good. But then he goes on to say, it was impossible for me to believe that I, could at- that I could attain salvation only by becoming a Christian. My reason was not ready to accept that Jesus, by his death and by his bloody by his blood, redeemed the sins of the world. I could accept Jesus as a martyr, as an, as an embodiment of sacrifice and a divine teacher, but not as the most perfect man ever born. Like likewise, like Muslims like believe that Jesus was a miracle-working prophet, like born of the Virgin Mary. Like they believe a lot of things about him that are true, but they don't believe that he is the Son of God. And like you just would walk around the streets and ask people like who they thought Jesus was, and you could get them to give you honest answers. You would hear many of the similar, many similar answers. Right? He's a, a good moral teacher that he was a great model and an inspiration to do good works, that he, 
he lived a really good, though probably not actually sinless life, or that he, he died to show the world what sacrificial love is. Those are the views that are prevalent about who Jesus is in much of the world. But all those views are insufficient because they fail to identify the central truth of who Jesus is. They fail to get to the core identity of Jesus. And in the next verse, we see Jesus question the disciples to see if they have grasped that central truth. Verse 20 he asked, but what about you? He asked, what do you, who do you say that I am? And there's, so there are two things that, that Greek can do that English can't do as well that are important here. One, if they can place an emphasis on a word based on word order. And then two, that they have a plural form of you. And so in the question, who do you say that I am? First, like the word you is emphasized by how the sentence is written. Like it's you. Like who do you say that I am? And then second, that word you there is is plural. So we lived in Louisville, Kentucky for four years. And I like to think like living there didn't turn me into a southerner. And like especially like to think that living there didn't impact my like speech patterns too much. But it did change two things about how I spoke. Like one, I now pronounce Louisville, Louisville, not Louisville or Louisville. Like I've learned to say Louisville, like the locals do. The second thing that I changed is that I now, or like when I was down there, especially started to use y'all. Like now I felt weird, like using it, and like it still feels weird. But like sometimes it's just nice and convenient to have a a plural form of you to make it clear that you're talking to a group of people and not just an individual. So when Jesus asks a question, like he's emphasizing you and the you he's referring to is more than one person. So we, what he is saying, right, when he's asking a question, what he's saying is like, the crowd say I'm all those things. But who do you, all of you, all y'all, like my disciples, who do y'all say that I am? Like, do you believe the same thing the crowd believe? Or do you believe something else, something bigger, something grander? And Peter responds, as he often does, on, on behalf of all the disciples, when he says in verse 20, that you are God's Messiah. Or as the ESV puts it, you are the Christ of God. And like Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. They both mean like, the anointed one. Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed one. Christ is the Greek word, but they mean the same thing. So by, by saying this, Peter is acknowledging that the disciples understand. They, they've gotten that Jesus is God's specially anointed one. He is the Messiah, the Christ. Then the question becomes, like, well, what did he mean by that? What does Messiah mean? What does Christ mean? What does anointed one mean? Like when, when someone during Jesus' time talked about the Messiah, like what was that? What did they expect? And so throughout the throughout the Old Testament, we saw several different groups of people anointed. Like in Exodus, Aaron and his and the other priests were anointed for their role as priests. In Isaiah sixty one, Isaiah says that the Lord has anointed me to bring good news as a prophet, right? To, 
the, the priests were anointed and prophets were occasionally anointed. But the bulk of the anointing in the Old Testament was for kings. Right? So David was anointed by Samuel and Solomon was anointed by Zadok and Jehu was anointed by Elisha. In fact, this became so common seeing kings anointed that several times in the Old Testament the word Messiah, like anointed one, is used as a synonym for king. But along with this expectation that the current king was God's anointed, there's also an expectation that like one day God would raise up an ultimate king, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who would rule as David's on, as king on David's throne and over God's kingdom forever. So Luke has been telling us throughout this book that, that Jesus is that Christ, that ultimate anointed one. We've seen it several times, right? The angels in chapter 2 call Jesus the Christ. Jesus calls himself the Christ in chapter 4. The demons call Jesus the Christ in chapter 4. Right? But up until now, the disciples have not acknowledged that Jesus is the Christ. But now, Peter is telling Jesus, we, your disciples, recognize that you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And, then, and so, like, when, they, when he says that, like, you would expect, right, or at least I would expect, Jesus to say, like, yes, finally, you get it. Like, now you understand, and so now we can go about the business of spreading this news far and wide, you finally understand. But instead, in verse 21, we read, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. If you're like me, you're kind of like, what? Like, Jesus, like, you're the Messiah. Like, people should know. Like, why would you tell them not to tell anyone? Here's the thing, though. As the Jewish people fell under enemy control, once they no longer had a king of their own, so like here they're under a Roman rule, the kind of prevailing belief came to be that, that the Messiah would be a descendant of David who would liberate Israel from Rome and reestablish Israel as a, as a great power. The expectation became that the, the Messiah would come to free them from Roman oppression. And so if the disciples start running around telling people that the Messiah is here, they're going to get the wrong idea. We even see this in, in Acts chapter 1. After the resurrection, Jesus' followers still have a hard time understanding that the Messiah is not just a military conqueror. In verse 6 of Acts chapter 1, the disciples ask, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Like, even after the resurrection, they're still looking for Jesus to, to become the king of Israel and kick out the Romans. And so the disciples had the essential thing about Jesus right. That he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is God's anointed one who will sit on David's throne forever. Right? Their, their understanding of Jesus is sufficient. Unlike the crowds, they have the essential truth of who Jesus is but their understanding is still incomplete. They still don't fully understand who Jesus is. And the same thing is true for our understanding of Jesus. Right? Like, because we live on this side of the cross and because we have 
the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And because we have the Bible as God's Word, we, we have a far more complete understanding of who Jesus is and what He accomplished. But our understanding is still incomplete. Right? There's a couple of reasons for that. Right? One is, like, part of our understanding is incomplete just due to our lack of experiences. You can take walking with Jesus through certain situations to fully understand how he will work in those situations. It takes going through a deeply painful or difficult time in order to truly understand how how merciful and tender-hearted Jesus is to those who are suffering. So if you've just never gone through a season like that, then your, your understanding of Jesus in that area will be incomplete. It's hard to understand something about Jesus until you've had a reason to experience it yourself. Other times our, our understanding is due, our lack of understanding is due to like just lack of time in the Word. Right? One of the joys of reading the Bible even over and over again is that there's always more to discover about Jesus. This past year plus of like regularly writing sermons has has opened my eyes in this regard. Like, like passages that I thought I knew and I understood well, that I've had the time to sit with them and to think on them deeply. Like, they've revealed more and more of Jesus than I ever would have thought I could find in that passage. Like most weeks when I sit down to write the sermon, like I start frankly thinking, like, how am I going to spend 30 minutes talking about this? But then by the end of the week, after studying and learning and spending time in the Word, like I often end up asking the question, like, what can I cut so I don't preach for an hour? Like, as, we, as we spend time in the Word, like, our understanding of Jesus will become more and more complete over the course of our lifetime. But it will, it will never be fully complete. Because the, the final reason our understanding of Jesus is incomplete is that Jesus is the infinite God of the universe. He is, according to Colossians 1, the image of the invisible God in whom all things were created and in whom all things hold together. And so if you ever come to the point where you think your, your finite human mind has fully understood and fully grasped Jesus, then your Jesus is too small. And so that, that should not be discouraging to us. Instead, it should be encouraging. Right? That the God who guides and directs our path is far bigger and wiser than we are. Right? We should be confident that while our understanding is incomplete, it is sufficient. Jesus has not hidden anything from any of us that would be good for us to know. Right? He has revealed to us all that we need to know in order to come to a saving knowledge of Him and to live a life that glorifies God. There will always be more to discover. But if you know and believe that Jesus is God's anointed one, that He is the Messiah, who has come to forgive sins and restore people to a right relationship with God, then you have the essential truth about Jesus. And the opportunity to continually grow in your understanding of Him it should be a joy and a privilege and not a burden. And in the last verse in the passage, Jesus begins to, to fill in the picture for 
the disciple by explaining what kind of Messiah he came to be. Verse 22, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Well, the crowds had an, an insufficient understanding of Jesus, and the disciples had an incomplete understanding of Jesus. Jesus' understanding of himself was both sufficient and complete. He perfectly understands what he came to do and who he is. As, as God Messiah, his mission was not something so trivial and so insignificant as defeating the Romans and reestablishing Israel as a great power. As God Messiah, his mission was much grander. It was to defeat Satan, sin, and death and to reestablish the relationship between God and sinful man. His mission as God Messiah was far grander than anything the disciples could imagine. But because that mission was so grand, it also involved him taking actions that were far more radical than anything the disciples could imagine. Namely, by completing his mission meant he needed to suffer and be killed and then raised back to life. The only way for Satan, sin, and death to be defeated was for the sinless Son of Man, God Messiah, to be put to death. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but because Jesus never sinned, he didn't deserve to die. And therefore, death couldn't hold him And so God raised him from the dead. Because he died a death he didn't deserve to die, his death became a substitute for everyone who did deserve to die. Namely, each and every one of us who have placed our faith in Jesus. So that when we do place our faith and trust in Jesus, God treats us as if we have lived the sinless life that Jesus lived. Just as on the cross, he treated Jesus as if he lived the sinful life that we have lived. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for the sins of everyone who believes in him. And because of that, he made it possible for our relationship with God, which had been broken by our sin, to be restored. And here's what I find most amazing in all this. We're in chapter 9 of Luke. The suffering and death that Jesus knows is coming won't happen for another 13 chapters. That's a lot of time for him to reconsider. A lot of time for him to bail out. To say, like, ah, actually, I don't want to suffer all that I'm going to need to suffer for these sinful people. But he never does that. He walks into his mission fully aware of the unimaginable pain and suffering that his future holds. And he continues down that path willingly, unflinchingly. Like, he knew it was coming. And yet he chose to endure it because he loves us. Sinners that we are, he was committed to making a way for our relationship with God to be restored and for each of us to experience eternal life with God. So if you're, if you're here this morning, you've, you've never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, then I would invite and encourage you to do that. Don't merely trust that Jesus was an insightful moral teacher who had some nice things to say about loving one another. 
Don't merely trust that Jesus was a great man whose death was a model of self-sacrifice. Don't merely trust that Jesus was a prophet or a miracle worker. Trust that, that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is God Messiah who would suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and killed on the third day raised to life. Trust that by believing in Him, your sins which have separated you from God, your, your sins, no matter how unforgivable they may seem, can be forgiven because of what Jesus endured for you. And for those of us who are here who, who have placed our faith in Jesus, next week's passage will have much to say to us about like, following God and what following God's suffering Messiah means. But here, here's the gist. Following God's suffering Messiah means we may suffer as well. And it means dying to ourselves and our own desires and taking up our cross and following Jesus. Following Jesus, the call to self-sacrifice. Yet because of what He did for us, it is more than worth it. So as we, we prepare to leave here, Let us be amazed by how God sacrificially loved us in Jesus. And then let let that motivate us to live self-sacrificial lives for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we praise You for the work You have done and so many of the lives gathered in this room to reveal to us that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One who You sent, who died on the cross on our behalf so that we could be forgiven of our sins and experience eternal life with You. God, we never lose sight of the truth of that matter. We never lose sight of how deeply we need you and need Jesus to live our lives. We cannot do it on our own. We cannot earn our way to heaven on our own power, but we need your anointed one. We need the Christ to work on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and for doing what was required for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As a reminder, we leave here, we'll head down to the lake and we'll celebrate a baptism, which is a picture of this very thing, right? That picture of being identifying with Jesus and His death and burial and resurrection and we celebrate that what Jesus has done for us. As we we leave, like hear this word of benediction. Let the message of the Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Amen. You are dismissed.